Isaiah 61 through 7. Arise, shine, for light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, uh, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They gather together, they come to you. Your sun shall come from afar. And your diaries shall come, shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see, see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult. Because of the abundance, the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Epah, all those from Sheba, shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be guided to you. The rams of Naboth shall minister to you. They shall come up with, the, with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. Last Sunday, we let the candle of hope when remembering the hope which comes in Christ. Today, we light the can- second candle of Advent, the candle of peace. God has a peaceful dream for the world, and we dream it too. We dream of a peaceful world where nations come together, where war is a memory, and we eat at one table. As we light the candle of preparation and peace, let it remind us to prepare our heart for the coming of Christ. All right, we are in week two of Advent. We started this journey last Sunday. I want to begin our time this morning recapping where we were to kind of bring us all together on the same page before we uh, move in here to this passage in Isaiah. So as a reminder or as a refresher, if you weren't here with us, we are exploring this Advent season the themes of light and dark. And these are not the, the typical traditional themes uh, of Advent, but our hope and prayer is that as we look at these themes and, and how they're unpacked in Scripture, how they're talked about in Scripture, that it would take us to a really deep place this Advent season. So we started last Sunday with this really big 30,000-foot perspective on Scripture. And we saw that these themes of light and dark run all the way from the beginning to the end. Scripture opens. The first words of God are, let there be light. Right from the beginning, light is critical to the story of Scripture. And then some of the final words in our Bibles from the book of Revelation, we learn that night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. So this big story that Scripture is telling, one of the main themes is about the light overcoming and ultimately defeating the darkness. And we saw that that at the heart of this story, at the heart of Advent, is Jesus who claims to be the light of the world. This is one of his, his claims about himself when he arrives on the scene. And so we ended last Sunday with the question, the big question, where are you in relationship to this light? We we explored the story of Nicodemus a little bit and how he's in the dark, he's in the shadows, and at the end of his story, he comes in to the light. And so we asked these questions. Are you in the dark? Are you hiding from the light? Are you in the shadows? Are you sort of exploring, maybe lurking around the light, but you have not fully stepped into it? fully committed to the light. And then 
maybe you've been walking in the light for a while, but the darkness of our world, the darkness that you've been experiencing maybe in this past year, it's starting to feel like maybe it's blowing that light out. Like there's more darkness than there is light in your story. And so do we need to remember that the big story of Scripture is that the light wins? Do we need to trust that story? Do we need to trust this light again? Okay, so that's where we were. And we, we asked this question, what is, the, what is the invitation of Advent for you this year, 2017? So today we're going to turn our attention to the book of Isaiah. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. Let's pause here now and pray, and then we'll get into this, this conversation here. So Father, thank you for um, the gifts and the creativity that you have given to us, and the ways that you use that to help us see truth in a new way. And thank you for the, the gift of the coffee house and, and all the different elements that went into that last night and for the ways that it helps us remember the truth that even though it may not feel like it in the moment, the light wins, the light overcomes the darkness and because of that we have hope. Father, now as we begin week two, as we step into a new passage of scripture, uh, maybe one we haven't looked at ever or in a while, would you take all the, the concerns and the worries and the burdens that we bring in here this morning and hold those for us, that we may hear your voice and have the courage to respond as you lead us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, how many of you have decorated your house for Christmas? People who decorate their houses. Okay. Not as many as I would think. What are you guys doing for Christmas? <laughs> That's what I want to know. Decorating your home for Christmas. This is a tradition that a lot of people follow. And uh, I don't know about if you guys, again, maybe you're still planning on doing it, haven't gotten around to it yet. Our family, we did this last weekend. We went out and we got a tree. And then, you know, you do the whole deal of, of finding the ornaments and, and dusting off these boxes. And then there's this like wrestling match with lights where you try to untangle this thing. And then hopefully it turns on when you plug it in. Anyway, we did that whole thing last Saturday. And we got this tree, this amazing tree <laughs> it's like this tall but it's perfect for our kids to be able to decorate the whole thing and so we had a really fun time doing that and a lot of us do this we decorate our homes for Christmas to help us get into the season now here's a, here's something that I did not know about until very recently okay there's a concept in real estate called the Christmas tree window all right the Christmas tree window is a, a feature of a home where, where the living room or the family room is at the front of the house. And then there's this really big window in the living room that, that sort of goes out to the street. And what you do is you put a big old Christmas tree in your Christmas tree window so that people, when they're walking by your house or driving past your house, your friends or neighbors, they can look in that window and go, wow, they have a big Christmas tree. Okay, this is the Christmas tree window. Some people, this is one of their like, you know how you have like a top five list or, or a sort of checklist for a house? This is one of the things that some people put on that checklist. They want a house with a big Christmas tree window. Now I want you to hold on to that thought for just a moment. We're going to talk about the word Advent. Okay, the word Advent literally means a coming or an arrival. One of the 
long-standing traditions around this season is that Advent is a time of anticipation. Now, originally, way, way back, Advent was actually more about anticipating Jesus' second coming. That he's already come and we celebrate this at Christmas, but there's going to be this moment when he comes back in physical bodily form. And so Advent historically has been about anticipating the second coming of Jesus. Over time, it's sort of morphed a little bit to be more about anticipating Christmas Day. But either way, this, this process that we go through every year of decorating our house and pulling out the lights, getting a big Christmas tree to put in our Christmas tree window, all that stuff is about anticipating, getting excited for, celebrating the Christmas season. Okay, but let's get, let's get real here for just a moment. Is not this process of decorating our homes, and in particular this Christmas tree window, is it not sort of a metaphor for how a lot of us approach Advent? That we spend a lot of time and energy decorating, making our homes look beautiful so that we can project this image out to the world that everything is great, that we're doing fine, putting on a, a, a happy face, this good image for everyone to see. But behind that, underneath that, to extend the metaphor, all the other rooms in our house are a mess. And it turns out that Advent, much like the rest of the year, much like the rest of life, is really this mixture of light and dark. And so one of the questions we have to ask during this season is what do we do with our darkness? What do we do with our mess? Do we hide it in the back room? Do we pretend like there's nothing going on? Or do we bring it into the light? Our text today begins with this tension between light and dark. Look again at Isaiah chapter 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. So again, right out of the gate here, we're confronted with this tension between light and dark. It says the light has come, but darkness is still covering the earth. If you were here last Sunday, this should remind you, should sound like some of that language we saw in Genesis chapter 1. Now what's going on here with this light and dark thing in Isaiah? Well, to understand this, we're going to have to do some context building. And to do that, we're going to have to look at, at who Isaiah was and what this book is all about, some context for the book itself, and then also some work on the history of Israel. So get excited about all that, okay? It's going to be fun. <laughs> okay, so Isaiah, who wrote this book, is a prophet. During the days of the kingdom of Israel, so roughly 1,000 to 700 BCE, God would raise up prophets to speak on his behalf to the rulers and people of Israel. That's the essential definition of a prophet, one who speaks on behalf of God, relays a message from God to people. And I emphasize that point because sometimes when we hear the word prophet, we think of a, you know, a person, a fortune teller, or someone who kind of looks into a crystal ball and is able to predict the future. Now there are definitely future-oriented aspects to the work of prophets. But that future-oriented 
stuff was always about creating a crisis in the moment for those who were hearing their message. It was meant to disrupt the status quo, to disrupt the way that they were living their life in that particular moment, disrupt them into new patterns of thought and behavior. And in particular, these visions of the future were meant to actually draw them back, to call them back to an agreement. And the Old Testament word that we see all throughout Scripture is the word covenant, to call them back to a covenant, an agreement that they had made with God. That's the work of the prophet. Isaiah is considered to be uh, the masterpiece of prophetic literature in the Old Testament. One reason for this is that the book is just really, really, really long. (laughs) It is actually the longest book in the Bible. The other reason, though, is that Isaiah has a significant job. There's a massive scope to his prophetic message. and In particular, he's speaking to both the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. Now, you might be thinking, what is this kingdom of Israel, kingdom of Judah all about? Good question. Here, let's do a little bit of of looking at the history of Israel. Okay, so the people of Israel uh, can draw their heritage all the way back to Abraham. Abraham appears in Scripture in Genesis chapter 12. The first 11 chapters of Genesis are about this good world that God has created and how it totally goes off the rails. And so when you get to the end of chapter 11, there's this question hanging in the air. What is God going to do about the problem of sin and the violence and the death and the the destruction that sin has caused? And you get to Genesis chapter 12, and the answer is God chooses Abraham. God chooses Abraham and he promises him, makes a covenant with him that he'll give him land and kids, a home and a family. And it's this family that is going to be a vehicle of blessing. The word we use a lot here is shalom. A vehicle of shalom uh, to God's broken world. They are to be a picture of how God created and intended creation to always work. Now, a couple of generations after Abraham, the family ends up in Egypt. They, uh, in Egypt, they grow in number. They're there for 400 years. They become slaves. God rescues them from that slavery through the leadership of a guy named Moses. Moses leads them out into the wilderness, and they end up being in the wilderness for a long time on their way back to the land that God had originally given to Abraham. In the wilderness, they renew this covenant. And there's a lot of details this time. You can read about that in Leviticus through Deuteronomy in your free time. It's a lot of details. (laughs) Anyway, they renew this covenant. Eventually, they go back into the land, again, that had been promised to Abraham. They settle down. And as they settle down, they begin to look around and notice that all of the peoples around them, all of their neighbors have kings. And they begin to think, we want a king. And so eventually they decide to do this. And in choosing to have an earthly human being as their king, they are, they are rejecting God as their king. And as you can imagine, this experiment in being a kingdom does not go very well. There's only a few brief moments where having a king is a good thing for the people of Israel. There's three, there's three kings right out of the gate. A guy named Saul and then David and Solomon. And it's after Solomon that the kingdom splits. So only three kings in and they're already uh, dividing against each other. The northern kingdom becomes Israel. 
The southern kingdom becomes Judah. And again, here is where the prophets come in. Again and again, showing up, calling the kings and the people to turn back to the covenant that they made with God all the way back in the Abraham story. Very typical prophetic message would be something like this. Hey, you guys have have really messed this thing up. But if you turn around, if you head in a new direction, the theological word here is repent. If you turn in a new direction, come back to God Things will go well for you. But if you don't, you are going to face some consequences. And in many instances, the prophetic message is the consequence is that you will be conquered by a foreign power. And sure enough, this is exactly what ends up happening. Israel is conquered by Assyria and Judah is conquered by Babylon. And in both cases, a huge chunk of the population is taken back to those, to those nations. So this becomes known as a time, a period of exile. So Isaiah, this book, is so massive and important because it is written to both kingdoms. And it's, it's sort of warning them, sort of explaining them about what has happened to them. The first 39 chapters are, are the warning and explanation of how they ended up in exile. And then the second half of the book, chapters 40 through 66, is a vision for the future. It's not always going to be like this, Isaiah says. One day you will get to come back. And that that future vision is divided up into three larger sections, one of which ends right before today's text. Chapter Chapter 59 ends one section, chapter 60 begins another. So where we're at today comes at a hinge point. And what I want to do is go back to chapter 59 because it provides a nice summary of what's been going on and then that will hopefully set us up well for chapter 60, okay? So Isaiah 59, the first two verses say this. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. These two verses give us a really great summary of Israel's predicament. And really, a a great summary of our predicament as well. We have all blown it. We've broken relationship with God, which is the basic definition for sin. And the result is that there is this separation between us. Sin has separated us from God. Isaiah goes on to say, the way of peace they do not know and there is no justice in their paths. They've made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold, darkness. Here's that theme again. For brightness, but we walk in gloom. So here, sin is not just an individual thing, but it's corrupted the entire society, such that justice is perverted, darkness covers them, they do not know peace. So the Lord looks at this. He saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. Again, a really great summary of Israel's story. 
They've turned their back on God. They've unleashed these chaotic forces of sin to wreak havoc in their lives and in their society. And so there's no justice, there is no peace, and yet God does not give up on them. This is our story as well, right? God does not give up on them. He says that he will send an intercessor to bring salvation. So now when we turn the page, we get to Isaiah chapter 60. And we're told that the light has come. Isaiah is speaking of a future time when this intercessor, this Savior, has arrived. Now look again at what the text there says at the beginning of chapter 60. When their Messiah comes, when their Savior comes, he will be a light that will draw other nations and kings to him. Isaiah goes on to say, lift up your eyes all around and see, they all gather, they come to you. Your sons shall shall come from afar and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Here's some foreshadowing about the end of the period of exile. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. That's a good thing. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Now, if you were living in exile, if you were living in a far-off land under an, an oppressive king, this sounds pretty good, right? Not only are you going to be home, Not only are you going to be in your own land under your own king, but now these foreign kings are going to come to you. They're going to come to you and they're going to bring their wealth. They're going to bring gifts. They're going to bring camels and a bunch of other stuff. It's not a bad turn of events. Now the picture that Isaiah paints for us here is fulfilled at least in part by the arrival of the wise men from the east at the birth of Jesus. And if you were here last Sunday, remember we looked at them very briefly when we considered the star that appeared in the sky signifying that Jesus had been born. I want us to consider the wise men again this morning. So if you have a Bible, flip over now to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, In the days of Herod the king, we'll talk about Herod a little bit more in a moment. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. We do not know a lot about these wise men. They're somewhat unknown figures. They only appear in in Matthew's telling of the Jesus story. They may have been from from Persia, but really the East kind of opens it up to a lot of possibilities. Sometimes they're thought of as as royalty, right? The the three kings. By the way, it never says that there's actually three of them. Most people or most scholars guess that they are priests and probably priests of a religion, the, the religion of Zoroaster, which was all about looking to the stars in the skies to try to discern truth about the world there's not a lot that we know about them for sure but one thing that we can say for certain is this they were not from israel 
They are from somewhere else, and yet they recognize something about Jesus. Something is going on here. This is an important moment in history. A king has been born. We've got to find out more about this. And what's interesting is that they don't come to cut a deal or to compete or even to kill Jesus. They come to worship This is a significant contrast to this guy, Herod. Herod sends them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Which is a lie. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, we could do a whole sermon on Herod and contrasted him to the wise men, but I just want to point out one thing here. Herod is the local governor, the local king, the local authority, and he is immediately intimidated by this news that some other king has been born. And it takes him to this very paranoid, murderous, dark place. If you read on past the section that we just looked at, Herod does some really nasty stuff. And so this this claim to want to worship Jesus is totally fake, right? Totally inauthentic. And what's interesting is that it's the outsider, it's these wise men from the east who recognize Jesus for who he is and who who respond in worship and whose worship is genuine and real. This is a huge foreshadowing moment. This is how the Jesus story is going to unfold again and again and again. The unlikely person, the outcast, the outsider is the one who tends to recognize Jesus for who he really is. This moment is also part of the fulfillment of the ancient promise to Abraham that in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. These guys go back to their home having met Jesus. We don't know what, what happens at that point, but imagine the impact of that in the communities that they return to. And then... The wise men also helped fulfill Isaiah's prophecy that the nations would come, would be drawn to this light and would bring their wealth, would bring their treasures. Frankincense and gold specifically are mentioned in both Isaiah and Matthew. Let's talk about these things for a moment. Gold is obviously very valuable. Would have been a nice gift under any circumstance. But here... This gift that they give is signifying this is a king. This is royalty. They're recognizing Jesus as king. And in giving this gift are submitting themselves to his authority. Now frankincense was also a precious commodity. Would have been used in the temple uh, in different worship ceremonies. Frankincense was seen as a symbol of of God's presence or spirit. And so here the wise men are recognizing Jesus' divinity. This is not just a king. This is not just a political figure. This is God 
who has been born here at this time in this place. So these are not just random gifts. These point us to a deeper truth about who Jesus is. The curveball in the story, though, is myrrh. Myrrh is not part of the Isaiah text. Now, myrrh had many uses, but one of its primary uses was to prepare a body for burial. Last week, I said this earlier, but last week we looked at Nicodemus. Nicodemus is there at Jesus' death to take his body and make sure he's given a proper burial. Look at what Nicodemus brings. He came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Jesus is also offered myrrh when he's on the, the cross. Myrrh mixed with wine was a way to help numb pain. Now, we don't know exactly what the wise men knew, but their gifts, particularly this gift of myrrh, represent the great twist in the story, the twist that Israel had all of the evidence for, but still didn't see coming, that their Savior was going to die. That he came to give his life, to lay his life down for them. And not just for them, but for everyone. This baby, this king of the Jews, would bring them salvation through his death, the light of life defeating darkness through his resurrection. Now I want to close with this. This is from uh, Luke's telling of the birth of Jesus. Luke chapter 2. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So the king, who is a light to all nations, is born homeless in an animal feeding trough in a barn in some backcountry town in Israel. It's difficult to imagine a more humble beginning to Jesus' life. And I want to go back now to that, that image of a Christmas tree window. I want us to contrast the manger, right? This, this very humble, messy beginning of Jesus' life with the image of a big, beautiful Christmas tree. <laughs> okay? This is where Jesus came. He came for our mess. Born into our mess. And there is no amount, the gospel is this, there is no amount of decorating or beautifying that we can do to make ourselves more appealing and pleasing to God. In fact, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still a mess, Christ died for us. This is actually the promise that's at the end of our text today as well. It's such good news for us. Isaiah 60, verse 7, I will beautify my beautiful house. 
the original audience would have heard this as being about Israel, but as we've seen today, this is for everyone. Jesus does the work for us. His presence with us, His light in us makes us beautiful. We cannot earn it. We cannot work ourselves into it. We cannot do enough. Jesus does the work for us. Now earlier we lit the second Advent candle, right? The candle of peace. And again, because of the mess that's going on in a lot of our lives, peace is not something that we feel very often, even during a season like Advent. Instead, we feel hurried, anxious, worried, tired, stressed out. And I wonder if that's because we're working so hard, working to make ourselves acceptable, working to justify ourselves, working to beautify ourselves. You cannot work yourself into peace. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so because God has made peace for us through Jesus, all we have left to do is respond. And I want to frame our response this morning through the lens of the gifts that the wise men bring. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I want us to think about it this way. We have this, again, we have this little manger up here on the stage today. What do you need to bring to Jesus? Born in a mess, born into our mess to make us beautiful. Do you need to bring gold? Remember that gold signified that Jesus was king, that he was an authority worth submitting to. Do you need to submit to his authority this morning? What about frankincense? Do you need to worship fully this Jesus who makes something beautiful out of our mess? Or do you need to bring myrrh? Do you need to recognize that Jesus is our Savior? That through his death we have peace with God? What do you need to bring this morning? Gold or frankincense or myrrh? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good news that you make something beautiful out of our mess. This good, free news that we don't have to work harder, we don't have to make ourselves look better, we don't have to justify ourselves. You do that work for us through Jesus' death and resurrection. Because of that, God, we have peace. We have peace with you. We can have peace with each other. I pray that we would all know that peace during this season that can be so busy and hurried and frenzied that we'd be able to pause and to know that through faith in Jesus we have true peace. And then Father, this morning, I don't know how we need to respond, but some of us, maybe we need to submit to your authority, your sovereignty, your leadership in our lives. May we bring gold in response to that. God, maybe we just need to recognize that you are God 
And we need to worship you accordingly. Maybe we need to bring frankincense. And then finally, some of us here, God, maybe we need to to acknowledge that you are Savior. That you came to die and to give your life away so that we could enjoy this peace. Maybe we need to bring myrrh. Whatever it is, God, I pray that you would give us the courage to respond in the way that you you are calling us, that you are working in our hearts. May this be a season for us where we know and experience your peace, despite whatever else is going on in our lives, whatever the circumstances of our lives may be, that we would know that in a new and very deep and real way. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.